Magalhaes to Stokes, who's onside. Wagner. Here's Sims. It's a good serve this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it. Just a minute to play. A stoppage time. Here's Letizia. Hello and welcome to the Saints FC podcast. Uh, today we've got two fantastic guests. We've got Mick Shannon Jr., uh, the son of the Mick Shannon. He's written a book called How's Your Dad? We're going to be speaking to him about that. And we've also got Mitchell Letissier, Matthew Letissier's son, uh, on the show as well. And me and him are going to catch up about everything Southampton and also ask him a few questions about what it's like growing up being the son of a Saints legend. Uh, there's also a fantastic betting tip coming up from Mitch Allen Jr., so do stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's go straight across and speak to him now. Uh, good evening. Welcome to the show, Michael. Is, is, do you go by Michael or Mick? Um, Michael, Mick, depends. But in Mick's company, John, it's, uh, it's normally Michael, so it's that we can actually Michael. get some sort okay. of sense going on. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, very happy um, to tell you I've got Mick Channon Jr. His dad is not on the line, so we could call him Mick now. Uh, but if you do see him with his father, call him Michael. Um, yeah. Now, Michael, you recently released a book um, called How's Your Dad? I did. Um, and uh, what was the little kind of strap line? It was Embracing Failure in the Shadow of Success. Yeah, I think that was slightly t- tongue-in-cheek, John. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah, that's often the the first question anyone always asks me is, "How's your dad?" So I mean, it was the the, the title was there waiting for me. Really, it was a, it was a it was a gift from others, as it were. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know. If it, do you fancy just kind of giving us a quick intro to what the book's about? Maybe why why you decide to yeah, write it? Yeah, the book came about. I mean, I used to be a journalist, and I I've sort of excelled at um um. I've excelled at failure, really, but but a high decent level, you know. So I've 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 put myself out there to be, you know, and I'd be my own worst critic, as it were. And uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to explain, really, unless you read it, because you, there's a lot of humour in there that can only be done through the written words. But um, you know, I was I wasn't very good at football, but I was decent enough to be proven that I wasn't good enough to be a pro. Um, I I went on to become a sports journalist, and that was just peppered with. Well, basically, I'm king of the cock-ups, and uh, if you're a paranoid, insecure idiot, but also got a bit of front, as you could hear through me talking to you now, it's a, it can get you into awkward positions where um, where things tend to go quite wrong, and when they go wrong, they escalate into um, pretty awful situations, but that's where the humour comes from for a lot of the time, because I'm not feeling sorry for myself, although some people think it's a book that... Um, I'd bring myself down on, but you know, who there's all these autobiographies, and not this is an autobiography because they're done by celebrities, but this is like a memoir. But who wants to re- who wants to read about success? I think failures. There's there's far more humour and and interesting things to come through failure. Yeah, and, and there are some um, absolutely great stories and anecdotes in that book. Um, yeah, I think kind of my my personal favourites were. Uh, kind of drunkenly sleepwalking off the roof in Bristol. That yeah, a, that's that how my um, yeah, because I was, <laughs> I I was flo- That's that's how we opened the book. Really, there's a dedication to Alan Ball, and then I just thought, well, what sums me up really? And it was when I was 
got home drunk and decided to sleep on a sun lounger on my roof in Bristol. And I fell off the building uh, 40 foot. And if I hadn't have been asleep, they reckon I'd have snapped in half because I'd have braced myself. But because I was asleep, I sort of flopped. But only to the extent where I broke my hip, every rib down the right-hand side, my neck, slashed my ear in half, um, uh, broke my jaw. It was, it was um, yeah. So <clears throat> there, there is humour in that, by the way. But you've got to read the book. But, yeah, so my, my student career at Bristol came to an end through that. And... Uh, um, and that is, that's sort of like, in a nutshell, exactly what my life's done to me. Yeah, so lots of kind of like amusing situations where kind of everything goes tits up, but kind of mm. it's all right in the end. Oh, a catalogue of cock, cock-ups and everything's all right in the end. Anyway, everyone's got problems and everyone, everyone's got insecurities. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just a sort of bloke who put it all down on paper and um, exposed myself for what... I feel about the world, and especially with the backdrop of, of your old man being, um, you know, I wouldn't call him a living legend, cause, but, you know, I've heard him call that, because to me, he's just my dad, but uh, the backdrop of his success in life, in football, in horse racing, um, he's almost the opposite of me in terms of single-mindedness and tunnel vision, whereas I tend to um, take everything else into account. I waste a lot of, there's a lot of expended energy on things I probably shouldn't stress about. The, the book, the kind of the style that it's written in, you take us almost through kind of a diarised year in your life, which is 2015. Yeah. Um, yeah. A few things happen in that year. But then you kind of keep on jumping back to these, I suppose they're, they're anecdotes, but they're also formative moments in your life, aren't they? So they're, yeah. there's that yeah, time so at I university. Mean, randomly, it goes, it goes from the Cheltenham Festival when we had, uh, we had a big, well, we had a big, big run. We didn't win, but it was an exciting day. And then it goes all the way through 2015, through the flat season, through the, and it was a terrible season as well. So the diary covers, um, and it's, I've, I've, it's not written as a horse book. You don't need to be um, a, a, a racing person. It's about the journey that you have working with your father in a in a fraught industry where failure is, you know, you know you lose you, you win one race every ten that, that your horse is running. So it's a losing sport, and um, it's about coping with the with that. And then Mick was very ill, and he had an operation. It was life changing for all of us. We thought, and uh, uh, and Mick obviously tried to treat it as toothache, and uh, and it, and then it flashes back to my trial at the Dell when Borley took me on. And um, all sorts of things, uh, play, you know, playing football in, in you know, in, in Roundham's area of Southampton and my childhood and Bobby Stokes is features prominently. And um, just it. So the spine of the book is a diary of that, that year, which was, you know, bad horses, bad health. And then um, floated in around it is things that define me, really, and hopefully give someone an idea of where I'm from. But it's a weird thing that I wrote it because I haven't actually done anything of of note in terms of you know it's not an autobiography as i say it's not about someone's career it's about someone's journey i suppose which is a terrible artsy thing to say but that's <laughs> what i mean someone's journey what a tosser yeah why the hell not let's be a little bit pretentious and, and put yeah why not because that's the worst yeah. thing though because you just you know you, you you go and write a book oh you're a writer i and all my mates are piss takers down the pub and that's very much how it's written and I'd hate anyone to um to think I'm bigging myself up in any of it, which is pretty obvious, I think, when you read the catalogue of cock cups, as I say. No, absolutely. Um, so I wonder if, kind of, for, for the benefit of the listeners, um, you could maybe tell us about uh, one of the anecdotes in the book. 
Yeah, well, I'll tell you about the 1985 then, when I was ten and a half, and um, Mick had moved on from Southampton, and uh, it looked like his career was going nowhere, and um, he was playing at Bristol Rovers, and uh, then he got another, he, he got he got the last opportunity when he was 34 or something to go to Norwich City, who was struggling against relegation in the first division, which is now the Premier League, and um, so he signed for them on a month-to-month contract for two years. Only signed a month because he didn't want to play in the reserves. And they got to the League Cup final. They turned it around and they had some great players there. They had Dave Watson who went on to play for England and Everton and Chris Woods was in goal. Steve Bruce was, was another one of the young... They were all young kids then. And um, Mick was the old arse in the side with Asa Hartford, who's a big pal of his. And um, because they were all young kids, Mick had a ten-and-a-half-year-old son who was football mad. Um, he just smuggled me onto the pitch, really, at Wembley for the Cup final. And not just on the pitch, I did, we did that thing when they go out with their suits on and I was in the dressing room for the team talk and we came out in the tunnel and I was on the second row of those old leather benches, if, you, if you're old enough to remember the old Wembley. And uh, I sat there for the entire game and um, it was just an incredible... Because he didn't tell me about it either. I came up on the bus from Fair Oak where we lived just outside Southampton with the family and... Um, uh, and I was smuggled into the tunnel, you know, the big oak doors that used to be there, and I was, Mick gave the old boy who looked after that gate a bollocking and told him to let me in, and I went in the dressing room, drank a load of cordials with glucose tablets in it, and I remember so much of it, but it, it went by so quickly, and they ended up winning the game 1-0, and I went on the lap of honour, and, you know, uh, it's one of them, really. As a kid, I was thinking, it's only the league, it's only the milk cup, it's not like the FA Cup, because I grew up on Stokesy and his golden boot. Um, but at the time, but now I realise how massive it was. Norwich, like Saints, they've only won one trophy in their in their existence. Do you know what I mean? And and to be a part of it, even though you're so blasé and ignorant as a ten and a half year old boy, um, it was it was just a day where, you know, if you can't write a book about something, if you can't write a chapter on something like that happening to you, you um, you you haven't really got a heart, have you? No, it's a it's a really kind of fascinating story to hear. Um, and uh, it actually resonated with me for um, a number of reasons. I mean, not only just the kind of the I think the way you write it, you definitely get the fact that you're this kind of ten year old that has all this admiration for these footballers, and, and you're definitely a fan in the moment, kind of um, in the same way that I think you know any ten year old uh, would be. Oh, completely. Just... I mean, I was the I was the most, and I'm not a statistically minded. I'm not one of them pub bores, but I was obsessed with football from a very young age. And I can tell you, I can tell you every FA Cup winner from 1950 onwards, a League Cup would be similar, especially in the 80s, you know, semi-finals. Um, but I don't remember, I can't tell you, I can tell you probably the last, yeah, United won the FA Cup and then they won the League Cup not long ago, did they, which, um, which wasn't a particularly good day. But in terms of history, I can tell you everything up until, up until the age I was probably started going to the pub <laughs> or or sky sports came along because then football was unavoidable but back in the day fa cup semi-finals and finals they were very rare events on live telly and and it really it stuck in my mind and i can tell you exactly what what boots the players wore you know pumas patrick's and and, and things like that was um i was i was a dreadful anorak for football and and just being there was 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 incredible really now it's more incredible now i look back but i it certainly didn't pass me by because it was um it was just gobsmacking, you know everyone's kid goes on the pitch these days, don't they, um, for a cup final. Well, because Mick was older, I was the only lad of so we weren't treading on anyone's toes. I was just 
I was just a 10-year-old lad who wouldn't get in the way. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just a great memory that, you know... Right. Um, okay, so let's go on to the next one. So I wonder if you uh, fancy telling us about the bet, as you describe yeah. it, in the book. One of them days where you're in the right place at the right time, a bit like your dad playing up front for Norwich in 1985. Um, there's a lot of things in horse racing betting which are, you know, oh, he's a shrewd character and, oh, they've planned all this. It wasn't anything like that. It was just an ordinary September. It was a Thursday in 2014, I think it was. And I opened up the racing post. And you have to, you have to enter your horse in races a week beforehand and then declare 24, 48 hours beforehand you know, to actually confirm you're going to run. And as it sat, we had six runners. And I opened up the racing post and I said, all six of these will be placed today. And um, I phoned my Geordie mate in, uh, in Newcastle, Mark Midler, and... Um, I said, Midler, we're, we're going to, um, we're, all these will be placed. Go away and have a little bet, just a little fun bet. I do a tenner each way, doubles, trebles, accumulator stuff. He came back to me and he said, all right, I've done all six. So it cost us 94 quid each, which is a bit steep for me. I'm not really a big punter. But we did a Heinz 57, which meant if one horse won, you got a little bit back. If two horses won, or, you know, each ways as well. So they're all combined. So there's a six-timer, a five-timer, a four-timer, a two-timer, and one-timers and single bets as well. And uh, the first one got beat, and then the next five won um, at 16 to 1, 30 to 1, 8 to 1, 10 to 1, and something else to 1. Um, and they were the only one by a combined distance of between every race of about two and a half lengths. So they were all neck finishes, photo finishes, half a length with, uh, you know, and it was just one of them. It was a life changer, a life changing bet because it scooped me and my mate 82 grand. And, um, on a Thursday afternoon, and I didn't, it wasn't a, a betting coup as such, it wasn't planned, it just struck me as a bet that that, that could come in, and we trained all five, all five winners, and yeah, my mum went to Mauritius, I managed to send her first class, she'd never been before, so I paid for her and my auntie Pauline to go, go to Mauritius, so I'm sure, I'm sure people would be delighted for me, it's one of them sickening things that everyone thinks, <laughs> you know, everyone always, because me and my mate always goes, oh, we'll have a big bet one day, one of our dream bets will come off, and and it did. I don't think I've done it 20 times before and 20 times after and never got close. Yeah, no, it's funny with it. 54,500 to one, they're the sort of bets you want. Yeah. And um, so you kind of like take us through. So you had the first one didn't come through. No. And as kind of two, three, four come through, what are you feeling like when you're looking at bet number five and bet number six? And well, when we mate was in meetings, he's, he's, uh, he works in the building trade. He was in meetings all day and I was racing at Epsom. So I saddled two winners there. We had two winners at Epsom. And then, then I, I, I was on the horse box coming home. And as we're coming home on the horse box, we can only listen to it on the, on the, on the phone, like the commentaries. And then a uh, horse called Shawstap won. He won a 22-runner handicap. And uh, they, were, they were spread across the field. And he only won by a head. And there was about four horses in a, in a photo finish. And uh, then the last one I had, I got back to the office. And my dad, was, Mick, was in the office. And he's grinning his head off. And I said, you know, I'd spoken to me mate Midler, and he said, I think we've won 10 grand, you know, which was massive. You couldn't believe it. Anyway, I've come over the house. I had one bottle of lager in the, in the, in the fridge, and I've sat there, and it was a rubbish race at Wolverhampton on the all-weather, dreadful contest. And there was a two-to-one favourite, and uh, that missed the break. As they jumped out the stalls, that was left stone last, and we had an easy lead in front. Uh, a horse called... Um, 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 oh my god I can't even remember her name now Almanel her name was um, I was going to say I'll never forget her but I just nearly did and um, and 
she won in a photograph by a nose, which is the smallest thing you could have, and I just went absolutely mental. Um, lost the plot. All the lads were invited down to the Harrow in the village. Drinks were on me. Phoned me mum, and um, I had three pints, and I was almost paralytic drunk. I don't know whether it was um, uh, adrenaline or what have you, but, yeah, when you pick up 41 grand for, you know, it was uh, pretty special. There's uh, one of those dream bets, I, th I think, that people can kind of... You always hear about them in folklore. Yeah, but, yeah, they're, 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 urban, yeah they're urban myths, aren't they? Yeah. You know, and they, they don't happen to you, do they? But it happened to me. And uh, like I say, Midler, Midler's one of the... Me mate, the Geordie lad, he loves his betting and what have you, and he likes a night out. And uh, uh, he um, his his money was basically gone by Christmas, whereas I'm, I'm a bit more... I'm less of a punter, and, and uh, he's a younger man, though. Yeah. He's a younger man. He can stay out in the pub longer than me these days. Um, I, I'm trying to think. The, the Probably the best bet I ever had was a 50 to 1 on uh, Michael Spenson. Do you remember him? Killer, yes, the, yes. the ginger guy. Um, yeah. And it he was... War the... number 11, didn't he? Centre half. He was solid as a rock. Yeah, absolutely solid. But he always went up for the corners and he was 50 to 1 for first goal scorer. And it was the game against uh, Tottenham in the FA Cup when we won 4-0. 4 one yeah. Was it 4-1? 4-0, 4-1. I, I think, remember it. I think it was 4-0. But yeah, yeah, it was yeah it was four, he went up there for the first corner. Yeah, and the, the cross came over, and I think it went in off his arse, and he won me 50 quid, and I was like, pretty yeah, happy with that. He was, he was my <laughs> favourite. Didn't they call him Killer? He yeah, was a good yeah, lad. Yeah, it, yeah. Who, who was the other? Who was the, who was the talented lad with the blonde hair who scored a couple? Um, that was Anders Svensson. Oh, that was Anders Svensson, yeah. Yeah, 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 he was all right. No, they were good days, though. The, that was about 2003, wasn't it? I used to go everywhere with Saints then, and I lived in Manchester at the time, but I used to go to all the away games. I seldom went to the to St Mary's, but they were good days, actually. We had a good side then. Yeah, no, it was a good side. Um, I basically went to university in Southampton to continue having my season ticket at St Mary's. So that, they oh, were, good uh, man. You yeah. got priorities right there. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was just kind of thinking, so we've, got, we've gone through the two of those uh, anecdotes from your book, um, and yeah. one's about Norwich City FC, one's about horse racing. I, have, yeah. I, I haven't asked you to regale your seven weeks trial at, at Southampton and what it's like uh, playing with Matthew Letizia and, and I didn't that. play with him. I watched him and just you, went, you wow. <laughs> I mean, this, this, this is one of the things. So the first episode we interviewed... Um, uh, Jason Dodd and Neil Madison together and we asked them about what it was like playing with Latis and yeah. they said in the games you know they weren't surprised when he kind of dinked it over one head dinked it over another and slotted it in because they saw it in training every single yeah. day he was doing it to them you know taking the mick out of everyone um, at training so you know what what was it like being in that I suppose wider squad of Southampton players yeah, I was mainly with the reserves. We played, we trained at Wellington, and so the, back in the day, I, obviously they're all at Staplewood now. But Staplewood didn't have the grounds that the, you know they didn't have the land that they that they've got now. It's developed into a monster now, isn't it? It's, it's an awesome place. Um, but we were at Wellington Sports Ground, so Borley and the lads would often train. Yeah, because they, they had the main pitch there at, at Staplewood and what have you. So the, we were kept quite separate, but we went pre-season to the army camp just outside Winchester, and obviously. You know, Tiz wasn't the best for running. He, I think because he, he he runs, he tells me he runs more now than he ever did when he played. You know, he, he actually goes on fitness runs and what have you. But back in the day, we we start pre-season would start um, middle of July for for the for the for the lads and the fat lads and that. And uh, you just basically jog around the common. You go around the common, and then you go around the sports centre, um, up past around the top of the Muni Golf Course, 
um, and then downhill lane. And I remember, and I, this isn't uh, this isn't something you know. You hear a lot of stuff about oh he was lazy and that, but I remember Tiz complaining about having a calf problem when we got back to the car park at the Sporty where where the Lucas Aid van was. And uh, as I'm jogging down Hill Lane, wheezing like a good and going past King Edwards, um, there goes the uh, old Woggy. Do you remember the kit man, Malcolm? Yeah. He's driving the Lucas Aid bus, and Tiz is waving waving to me down, out the back window. And uh, so he had a bit of a calf problem at the time, but he was it was never a problem when the um when the balls come out in the afternoon for the football. He was, you know, you, you used to have to do your stretches and what have you. Leave the balls alone, do your stretch. Tiz would just empty the bag of balls and start hitting the crossbar from the halfway line, and just he could strike a ball. And if I've played golf with him and cricket, and he's just got an amazing eye for ball striking. You know, he's just um what a man, what a player. Um, the big story that sticks in my mind, because I say I didn't really play a lot with him. I um, I I was with the reserves, um, but uh, we played the the week before that season. We we started off our first game of the season was against Newcastle away, and the first team got back from Scandinavia. And Ballie wanted um, he wanted a proper test, you know. And the and it's a bit of a mismatch at that stage of the season because you've got a lot of established pros who are stuck in the reserves, so they've got the ump. And then you've got trialists or young reserves or young pros who are desperate to make an impression, whereas the first team don't want to get injured. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, with inside 20 minutes of this practice match, reserves against the first team, um, we've got right stuck into them for a variety of motivational factors. And the first team are obviously not on it. We went 2-0 up and uh, Borley went mental. He could do that whistly thing with his fingers. Uh, right then, I'm telling you, this is absolute crap. This, if you don't want to play for football, piss off and do something else and all that. He's give it. And he and Tiz was the worst of the lot, like. And he goes, right from now on, every third pass is going to go to Letizier. Well, I'm not kidding you, because um, you had Jeff Kenner there and and Franny was in the side, and you know Madison and Tommy Wid, and they were real, real honest, proper pros. Do you know what I mean? And 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 but you know they they weren't on it for a while. And but you them sort of players could give him the ball. They could do and Tiz when he knew he was going to get involved rather than some boring practice match on the Tuesday before Saturday, he knew he was going to get the ball. So then it became easier to him. And he started moving and finding areas. If someone was tight to him, he could nick it round the corner. He wouldn't beat a player, he, but he he beat him beat him with the ball. He couldn't run away from him as such, but he could drag the ball back and cut it inside and. He'd have you in knots, and his vision was amazing. And at one point, because it was third pass, he found himself in the left back, by the corner flag, in the left back spot, spot of his side. And it went back to Dave Besant. So Bez had to knock it back to him. And it's come back to him. And as me and Colin Cram, a little Scottish lad, um, we've gone rushing in to shut the ball down. Tiz has flicked it up, and without any stride or anything, he's whacked it on the volley. It's whistled past my left ear. And as he did it, he went, Jeff... And and Jeff Kenner was in the right back position on the corner of the 18 yard box, and he hit it right onto his chest. And I, I remember, he, you know, I'm like gobsmacked at what he did. And as he jogged past, he went, "Ah, oh, luck, Michael," and just jogged away, like not cocky or anything. Just that's just what he could do. And and that is, I've I saw him from. I started going what regular with me mate. I started going 88, 89 season, and you know that was when he was coming off the bench a lot and what have you. Um, so I've seen him be brilliant for Saints all through his career. and But that, to me, being up close and just wondering how the hell you do something like that. I mean, you know, he was a genius. He was just... And he, he was, and, and, and what a man with it as well. What, what a super lad. 
Yeah, he always comes across uh, absolutely brilliant, Letis, and, and every time I've met him, he's, he's been so Yeah, well, what well. you see on Soccer Saturday is exactly what he's like. Yeah. There's no, you know, I mean, it's, they always say never meet your heroes, but, I mean, he's, he's, he's what, well, just, it's exactly who he is. There's no front, there's no PR bullshit with him. No. You know, he's just, he's, no, not at all. And, you know, he still does loads of stuff in the community and, you know, let's talk, you know, charity. But you know he does it does it just because he wants to because that's what he is. He's, that's the sort of bloke he is. Yeah. Um, and I, so I suppose we can have like people probably from my age up to your age. Letitia is the the absolute hero when it comes to Southampton. But I suppose yep. for people a bit a little bit older than you, your dad was probably the Letitia for for them as they were growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And. Um, um, I remember kind of like reading your book, um, you're saying as a 10-year-old and your dad is a you know, professional football player and you kind of just think, oh, that's the same experience every 10-year-old has. And I actually yeah. remember being 10 years old and thinking, well, why isn't my dad a professional football player? Because you know, that's, that's clearly the best job there is going out there. What, you know, I know. What, what was he thinking? Why yeah. did he just go and what, do why it? Why is he dad, working in you... IT? What the hell is he playing? <laughs> dad, what are you thinking you're playing? Yeah, I mean... I mean, but you only get one. You only get one. You only get one dad, and you only get one childhood. And like my mum and dad were divorced, and and things like that. And you know, you you know, people say, did the divorce affect you? And you're like that. Well, no, because I only had one childhood, and that's what I grew up with, and that's what happened. And it's a bit like that with my dad. You know, I'm flummoxed because we have lots of fallouts, and you know, I call him a dickhead, and he tells me to shut up, and you know, and and because that's my dad. It's. And, uh, you know, I appreciate what a great footballer he was because I remember watching him and I remember he was great and his record speaks for itself. But, yeah, I was probably a little bit blinkered in terms of, uh, I remember, <laughs> I was quite embarrassing now, but I was, I, there was no, I, I was not a snotty kid by any means. I don't think so anyway. And there was that thing, um, on half term, go, I want you to come back with a story about what you did with your daddy. You know, go to work with your daddy, one of them, you know, on half term holidays. Yeah. And so one lad gets up, my daddy is an architect and he works in an office and when he does that, he does buildings and, you know, one of them. Yeah. And I just go, yeah, I am, um, on half term, I went to the Dell to go training with Uncle Keir, Kevin and Uncle Alan and I scored a goal on the pitch at the Dell and on Saturday I went and we beat Manchester United 2-0. <laughs> I mean, that to me now just seems bizarre, but that's how it was at the time and, uh, I was very, very privileged to actually see it all. Right, okay. Um, Mike, I think we'll we'll kind of wrap it up now. Thank you very, very much for speaking to us. But um, No, thank you, John. I just hope I haven't bored anyone to tears. No, and uh, I, I think um, one of the things we, we ought to do, having um, a horse racing trainer on the podcast, I think we'd be foolish to let you go without asking you for at least one or two betting tips for the, the upcoming Cheltenham uh, Festival or, or, or any races coming up, I suppose. Well, I won't give you one for Cheltenham, but I'll tell you our best two-year-old, which will be making its debut in April. Okay. Uh, and it's called Neola. N-E-O-L-A. Neola. 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 So that's our best two-year-old at the minute. She'll be, she'll be winning in April. Okay. There we go. We'll keep, uh, keep our eyes, eyes peeled on that. Um, and I'll let you know if anyone wins uh, 82 grand from that from a result of listening to this podcast, if they can They'd have to probably one. put more than the 90 quid I put on, yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Well, thank John, you. thanks a million. I really thank appreciate you very much, it. Matt, for speaking to us. It, um, it's coming out. In, it's coming out in paperback next month. How's your dad? One of the finest books I've ever read or written. Yeah. <laughs> How many books have you read? Well, I've, I've read two books and I've, re- I've written one. <laughs> You've so. written one of them. Yeah. Okay. That's great. No, I I thoroughly agree. I read it over the the weekend. Um, it was very very enjoyable read. There's definitely anything. You know, if you have a father, if you have a relationship with a father, don't have a decent relationship with your father. If you're interested in football, interested in Southampton, interested in horse racing, or interested in anecdotes from getting drunk at university, there's, <laughs> there's something there's something in there for for everyone, I think. Or, or if you just want to hear about someone moaning about his dad and um, yeah, and uh, and and rowing, and if don't buy it if you if if swearing bothers you, because some of the language in there is quite atrocious. Yeah, I must say they did quite well tonight. We haven't had uh, too many swear words in, in this episode. Well, exactly. Yet. I'm not as bad as the old man. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks, John. Much appreciated. Speak Great to, to mate. speak to you. Cheerio. All right, Bye-bye. Right, so um, good evening, Mitchell. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, very happy to have uh, Mitchell Letizia, son of Matthew Letizia, um, who's agreed to chat to us on the Saints FC podcast um, about life growing up and uh, a little bit about the Saints kind of current predicament as well. Um, so Mitchell, we were just speaking to uh, Michael Channon or, or Mick Channon Jr. Uh, earlier. Um, he's just written a book um, called How's Your Dad? But really it's more of an autobiography about him with a few kind of anecdotes um, kind of thrown in from his experience of growing up having this kind of famous dad. Um, and I wanted to know really if there's if if you guys have had similar experience um, from that. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, he said is is for him, you know, growing up you just have one dad. Your dad's your dad, and you don't really think anything of it. So um, whilst to other people your dad might be this legend or whatever you want to say, but you know what what is that experience like growing up with someone who is a Southampton superstar being your father? Or is it just normal because it's 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 what you know? Yeah, I think I think it probably is weird, but to me it's it's completely normal because that's all I've ever known. Like I say, um, it, it's it is difficult and it is it's quite. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. Um, it's quite strange having sort of people. Sometimes people will talk to you, and, and before they sort of acknowledge that you you exist or sort of ask how you are, it's uh, like like very much like Mick's uh, book. How's your dad? <laughs> it's it's very much like that. Yeah, that's, that's the. Uh, I think he said that's the opening question he always gets before anything else. Oh, how's your dad? And and then yeah. moves on to the next yeah. thing. Yeah. So same thing for you, was it? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly, people who. Uh, don't who I don't know that well. Um, who obviously know who my, da- who my dad is. Um, yeah, I do tend to get that quite a lot. Yeah, um, and and so um, I suppose it, I mean you grew up on the on the Channel Islands, didn't you? Rather than in Southampton. Uh, yeah, so right? I think I was yeah. about five or six when I moved back to Guernsey from from Southampton. Yeah. Okay, so um. Uh, do you think it was kind of like a different experience when you're living kind of far away or, or does everyone on Guernsey kind of talk about you know, your dad, the family or, or what's, um, it, what's it like? It is a little bit different because um, obviously here 
um, in the UK, when you say your surname's Letitia, it's quite um, obviously uncommon. Uh, whereas in Guernsey, there's about six pages of the phone book um, that is Letitia. So just uh, being Letitia there doesn't necessarily, people don't relate that to you being sort of related uh, to dad. Um, but obviously here, I mean, now I'm, I'm doing a sort of uh, insurance job where I'm going out and chatting with people, meeting people, and uh, it's quite often the first question I get, oh, are you related to? Um, but yeah, in Guernsey, it wasn't quite quite like that because the, the name didn't really stand out as much. Yeah. Um, and what do, you, what do you say when people ask you that question? Do you go, oh yeah, actually, he is my dad, or, or, or do you sometimes just think, oh, I can't yeah, believe it today? No, I, 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 I've never said no because I'm not in any way ashamed of who my dad is. Um, so I'll always answer honestly. Um, but it, it does get quite annoying when, when you say, oh, yeah, he's my dad, and uh, and people go, really? Oh, really? 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 Yes, he's my dad. Can we move on? <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, one of the um, things that I actually remember um, of you is I went to um, your dad's testimonial, testimonial matches, yeah. <laughs> where I think you came on um, pretty close towards the end and probably had the, the most impressive I mean did you get hat-trick faster than Sadio Mane did against Aston Villa that, that season because it can't have been far off I don't think it was quite that quick but no. it probably wasn't a million miles off no um, and um you know, uh, Michael had some kind of similar experiences uh, playing um, at the Dell, and he also ended up ha- having a trial with Southampton when Alan Ball w- was manager there. Can you take us through what it's like going up at, and playing there? Because I think, you know, when I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, there is nothing I would have wanted to do more than go out onto the big stage. But can can you tell us about that experience? What was it like? Well, I don't know... It, how I remember it and how it actually was were the same thing. But how I remember it was that there was there was no plan. There was never talked about that I would go on and, and tech because um, my uncle Mark was refereeing. Carl and Kevin both played. Um, there was no talk that I would go on towards the end. I think I'm pretty sure they come off at half time and I said to Dad, oh, "Can I go on for ten minutes at the end?" And he went, "Yeah, of course." Um, so yeah, it was completely unscripted um and yeah and obviously i think i think it was about 10 minutes to go um i come on for i believe peter beersley not a bad not a bad thing to say you've been substituted <laughs> on peter beersley okay. he, he wasn't bad in his day um, yeah i remember coming on um the rest of it is pretty much a blur i remember kevin keegan coming off and giving his shirt to a ball boy who also played. I can't remember a great deal uh, other than Ian Wright putting the ball on the six-yard line um, for the penalty, yeah. which obviously Ian Wright took a massive dive for. Um, <laughs> and my, my uncle very kindly obliged with the penalty. Um, and Ian Wright put the ball on the six-yard line uh, as if to say, sort of take it from there. And I, and I thought, uh, I wasn't, you know, uh, 10 years old, I wasn't intelligent enough to think, what's he put it there I just went, well, that's not where you take a penalty from, is it? So I just I... scooped the ball up. I thought, I wonder why he's put it down there. Scooped the ball up, put it back on the spot and slotted it in. Blasted it away. And um, I, I suppose, did you ever kind of 
think that you were going to go on and be a, a professional footballer. Were you, were you any good when you were younger? Or did you ever have um, to cover any of those dreams of being a pro? I think every, well, I think the vast majority of 10-year-old boys want to be a professional footballer. Um, just remember, almost every day, getting home from school, have you got any homework? No, of course not. And uh, stick the boots on and get down the, the local sort of ground and, and take a ball and just play until it was dark, basically. Uh, yeah, I think I would have loved to. I would have absolutely loved to be able to do it. Um, wasn't to be, but uh, I did get a, a trial at Saints off the back of that. A guy called Malcolm Ellis, or Elias, I think his name was, or Elias, I'm not sure, um, uh, kind of invited me in to do a couple of training sessions and trials and stuff um, with Saints and must have been what, under 11s or 12s. Um, so I went and did that and uh, got told that I wasn't going to be taken on because I was too small, I think was, was the phrase. Oh. Oh, you thought they might take a chance with that, but uh, yeah, there we go. Um, so, what what is it that you do now then? I am an insurance broker now for my sins. That's what happens if you don't get good at football. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah, I, I work at a university and then uh, talk about football in my spare time. Um, but yeah, <laughs> have, having failed to to you know, ever be spotted and be given that trial, you live in Southampton now, don't you? And um, do you get to go and see the Saints pretty regularly? Yeah, the, the year we went up from the Championship, I had a season ticket from then. And at that point, I was still living in Guernsey and flying over every weekend to go and watch them. Um, I think the year we did the Championship, I think 25 out of 46 games. Um, still living in the Channel Islands. The Coventry game, the, the game we got promoted, was the most nervous I've ever been for anything in my whole life. I like my food, much like my dad. Um <laughs> And uh, I threw away about three quarters of a bacon baguette that day. <laughs> and I've never thrown away a bacon sandwich <laughs> in my life. Um, but I felt sick before the game. I just felt so nervous. Even though commentary were crap and we should have beaten um, like we did. Four, I think it was 4-0, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. We, we should have beaten 4-0 because they, they were rubbish on the flying. Um, and, I, you know, you know that. But at the same time, you kind of the occasion and the sort of having been out of the Premier League for seven years and all of that sort of stuff uh, I just had this horrible feeling that we were going to blow it <laughs> but yeah thankfully we didn't um, and obviously the rest as they say is history but um, no I've yeah, sort of had a season ticket since then actually gave it up uh, last summer um, uh, purely because I just had a, a baby boy uh, and sort of the time commitments and monetary commitments sort of Sort of better spent on on the baby. Um, that doesn't mean I won't get one back at some point, but just at that point in time, it, it wasn't the best thing for me to buy another one. But yeah. um, I have to be honest, um, I'm quite glad I've not bought one this season. I'm taking it that you're not a fan of uh, the current Saints team or or Claude Puel. Is that correct? Uh, Claude Puel isn't my sort of football manager. I have to say, he's. I'm sure he's a lovely fella. Um, but he doesn't inspire me. I mean, when Ronald Koeman was manager, and you, you know, you scroll down your Twitter feed and you see the 30-second clip of the interview, every time when Ronald Koeman speaks about football, I want to listen to him. Uh, I think, my God, this bloke knows what he's talking about. He makes me... The he went on Monday Night Football one... I think it was last... Uh, one Monday, and I recorded it just, just to hear what he had to say. Uh, did something similar with Jurgen Klopp uh, at some point this season. And it's that sort of charisma and that 
and that passion that I just don't get that from Claude Puel. I, he doesn't inspire me. He doesn't make me want to listen to what he's got to say. Um, I think he's come out of a lot of excuses that, that we've got a lot of games and, and we're making five and six changes. And I think the final straw for me with him was um, I went to Milan in October. Um, obviously, spent a lot of money, like a lot of us did, um, to get there. Um, I got up at 2.30 in the morning to drive to Manchester to get on a flight from Manchester um, to go to Milan. Uh, and I got there and he made, I think it was seven changes or eight changes. And, uh, and we'd, I'm still convinced to this day, if he picks his best 11, he, we win that game. Um, and that, that, that's lived with me. Uh, I think the European campaign was actually a pretty frustrating time for a lot of um, Saints fans. And I wonder... Um, if the there's kind of a, a little bit of a lack of respect uh, for that particular tournament, whereas if you're a Saints fan, you know to be in the Europa League is a really fantastic, exciting thing. Um, you know, likewise, well, with, likewise with the League Cup final, it was brilliant to get the day out at Wembley. Um, and I, I'm going to put my my counterpoint to Ronald Koeman, and it was the same with Pochettino as well. I thought under those two managers, we had a team that could beat anyone on its day. And it used to really upset me that we didn't take the Cups more seriously. Completely it's, agree. You know, to, to it's all very well finishing like 8th, 7th or 6th in the Premier League. And uh, I remember loads of games from those seasons, really exciting. But actually, one thing that Corpwell has delivered that those past two managers haven't was, you know, that trip out to Wembley. Um which is an unfe- unforgettable day, even though you know we didn't win it, and I, I don't think necessarily the managers to blame for that. But yeah, um, it it always really upset me with Koeman and Pochettino. They didn't push a bit more in the cup, but then Puel had the same approach, I suppose, to the FA Cup and and the Europa League this season. Oh, the um, to take your point, I think I remember when Pochettino's season in charge, we had a fifth round game against Sunderland. Um, and he made six changes, including bringing Hoyveld and Gouli de Prado into the team. Let's be honest, we all know weren't Premier League footballers. They, 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 were, they were okay at doing what they did in the Championship, getting us up, but they were never going to be Premier League footballers, players like that. Um, and he made, I think it was six changes that day, and a lot of people, I think it was a lunchtime kickoff as well, and people you know, had left here at four, four o'clock in the morning and all sorts to go up there, and for him to make... That many changes, I think that was disrespectful, especially at a time when we were in no danger of getting relegated and realistically we weren't going to get in the top six and get in Europe. And I think that was a big sort of faux pas. And I think Pochettino didn't realise sort of how seriously the Cups are taken here compared to maybe where he's managed before. Uh, and I think, he, yeah, I think look at the side he picked uh, yesterday, yesterday against Millwall. Um, he put the full lot out. Uh, with the exception of Ericsson um, it's cost dear because Harry Kane's got injured but I think he's learned that lesson um, Pochettino um, Claude Pouard let's be the Europa League group that we were in for me was, it had championship teams in it Sparta Prague was dreadful I really uh, we beat them 3-0 at home and I didn't think we played well to be completely honest um, I didn't think we had to play well I thought they were a really poor side I mean in Prague we were absolutely useless Um I don't know what happened that night, but we we never created a chance. We never looked like we were going to do anything. We never looked like we'd score a goal. Um, BSG were a little bit better than them for me. Um, 
but they're still not up to, to a great field. They were well organised um, in both cases against them, kept it tight, but they didn't, you know, they didn't look a threat, and we just failed to, to break them down. But yeah, I think the team, the team we picked in Milan, um, bothers me, um, especially as one of the sort of seven or eight thousand of us that went. Um, and I just think that would have been amazing uh, to say that you'd seen Southampton win in San Siro. Um, and we didn't get to do that. And I think he, his team selection played a, a massive part in that. Um, I think, yeah, League Cup, you know, fair play. We, we got to a final, we didn't concede a goal. Um, was it a bit more by, did he give it any more respect than just did? Uh, if you look at the side, I went to the Sunderland game. Uh, I don't didn't go to the Palace game. Um, but the Sunderland game certainly picked a side that was, you know, pretty pretty second string really. Um, I think he made eight changes for the game at all, but then eight changes from probably four or five changes the week before. So it's quite difficult to tell by the number of changes what sort of side he's picked really. Um, but no fair play, we went to Arsenal and, and we won. Um, and then obviously what we did against Liverpool over two legs was was pretty impressive. However, I would say that in the first, I think it's the first 10 games of, of 2017 of the calendar year, Liverpool only beat Plymouth. Um, I, th- I think we caught them on at a pretty good time. I do, yeah, I, I agree. I think we did catch them at a pretty good time, but I also think um, uh, the, the tactics that we used worked well at frustrating Liverpool, didn't, didn't it? You know, We got away with it a little bit, but it's. And that's. Sorry, that's that's what Claude Puel is actually quite good at. Is when he can set a team up to defend and uh, maybe hit on the counter. Um, what what he hasn't got is is the invention and the, and the creativity uh, about his tactical um, knowledge for me um, to go and break sides down. Now we are an established top half Premier League team. Team teams come to St Mary's and they they go well, thinking that they're quite happy with a with a nil nil. More often than not now, um, and I think. That has also transferred itself to the to the stands. Um, the atmosphere is nowhere near what it was in the first year or so back up in the Premier League. Um, used to go in there ten minutes before kick off and get a real buzz, and you know they'll be singing. And I think now we're getting a little bit greedy um, as fans. I think we expect too much. Um, I think we expect to, for the lower half teams to turn up at some areas and for us to just roll them over. Um, and I think that has affected the atmosphere. And I think that's what we struggle with under under Puel is, is the creativity and the breaking teams down. Um, don't get me wrong, organisationally and and defensively, he's he's not a bad coach at all. Um, I said that after watching about 20 minutes of the Bill Bow game pre-season. Um, we won't concede many goals this season, but I don't think we'll score many either. Um, I don't think I've been far wrong. I know we scored four in the last two league games, which kind of look a bit stupid on that point. But yeah, well, that, that, in, I, as a general. I suppose at this point I should probably interject and, and say I think you, your points about Puel's selection, the rotation, you know, being very defensively minded and us not being able to break down um, sides probably been true up until about four games ago where he slightly shifted um, the formation around. I don't know if... Yeah. Um, did you go to the cup final or...? I didn't. You didn't manage to get to the cup final, but um, um, but I know what you mean. He's gone to a four-two-three-one with Ford Prowse on the right-hand side, and we. But um, I think the, the the four, the last four games where we have looked far more creative, I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that he's picked his best team for the last four games. People have a chance to forge a partnership, and it also helps that we signed a, 
a pretty sharp centre forward in, in Manolo Gabbiadini by the looks of it. Yeah, I mean he he's been absolutely fantastic. I think you know I think that four two three is it four two three one formation does seem to be getting a bit more out of the place. Certainly going forward, I think maybe our injuries and the transfer market dealings have left us a bit weaker at the back than we were at the start of the season. Um, yeah, definitely. But I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. Um, uh, I would say with with well, I, I mean I haven't kind of like set my stall out of whether I was pro or anti him I've kind of wanted to give him a bit more time and I, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic over the last few few games I think um, as well Ward Prowse on the right for me has been a little bit of a revelation I don't know if he's ever really um, shown any sort of consistency or any kind of like high level that you kind of know he's got the talent but he's never kind of really delivered it and I think in this new formation it seems to be working a bit better for him and, and Redmond has been fantastic I think since that first semi-final with Liverpool as well Ward Prowse I think it was his best game he's ever had for Saints in the cup final I thought it was fantastic um, that and the, uh, it was Norwich who played at home and he, I think he scored a free kick and a penalty an absolutely bomb game um, those are the two games that I remember Ward Prowse where I thought oh wow this boy has got the talent that everyone tells me he's got but to see him do it over a consistent number of games um, before I'm 100% convinced on Ward Prowse um, but nobody denies he's got the quality from set pieces crossing um, I just want him to do a bit more just just influence the game a little bit more uh, for me um, he's, he's very nice technical footballer but how, how many of his passes actually create a chance um, uh, maybe his position is on the right where he can you know David Beckham want the quickest he never beat a fullback but he could cross the ball, and, and Ward Browse can certainly do that. So, um, yeah, I think hopefully he'll he'll come good in that role. Redmond, I'm gonna have to dis- disagree with you. I, I I can't have him. I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't have him at all. Can't have him whatsoever. He he's brilliant. He picks the ball up. He goes by two people like they're not even there, and he can't cross the ball and he can't finish. <laughs> so what's the point of going past two people in the first place? I I would agree that that has been my frustration with Redmond for the kind of first half of the season, but I, the last few games, well, I think since Liverpool, that first leg, I don't know whether it's the confidence or, or or what it is, but I think he's starting to kind of scare defenders, and now we have seen a couple of goals. There is a little bit of end product. Suddenly, all of that makes a bit more sense. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't make sense when he just. Puts, puts the cross miles away or you know the the shot goes nowhere but um i've been quite excited by him in, in the last few games but um yeah there we go um i'll have to i'll have to disagree with you on that one <laughs> all right we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that i'm, I'm not going to try and try and win you over on that one so um next game is against tottenham at the weekend at yep. white hart lane um, Tottenham are undefeated at White Hart Lane since last season uh, and the last team to beat them were the Saints can we do it again? Yeah. be difficult it will be difficult they're, they're a really good side um, especially at home uh, Harry Kane not being possibly not available was obviously a massive plus for us um, I imagine they'll probably play Son up front rather than Janssen um, it'll be difficult they're, they're a really good side but on our day against against sides away from home like that where we can just sort of set up to, to let them have the ball and see what we can do on the counter-attack maybe suits us a little bit more um, 
I don't know what the stats are, but I would suggest that maybe our record is a bit better than it has been in the last few seasons in terms of games where uh, teams teams want to take us on. Um, but then I think it's a, our record's considerably worse this season against teams that want to bank up behind the ball and, and let us back on, really. So it's a bit of swings and roundabouts. Can we beat Tottenham? I'll say no. OK. But if you if you are Claude Puel, you're managing the side, you're going to set it up like that kind of Liverpool second leg. You're going to say, right, we're going to absorb the pressure, try and nick a winner, rather than going for maybe, the free-scoring, free-conceding side that we've got um, over the last few games. I, I'm always for free, free-scoring, free-conceding. Yeah, I've always been a, I've always been a fan of the old you'll score three but we'll score four mentality. Um, yeah, it well, will be difficult. They are. They are I think on size. Saturday they managed to score six goals, didn't they? After Kane came off, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. Not, they're he, not he, uh, goals. No, but then it's a League One side, so you can't really take a great yeah. deal out of that. Um, but I think Pochettino, for me, he'll manage Real Madrid or Barcelona one day. I think he's fantastic. I'll do a bit of coaching myself, and he's certainly somebody that I look at and, and think, what does he do that that others don't? And I sort of quite watch games back with Tottenham when he was at Saints. And, and try and sort of work out his sort of, I hate using the word philosophy, uh, and try and take from it, really. Yeah, I, I actually have um, been arguing with my friends that I'd like Pochettino to be the next England manager. Um, I think he'd be fantastic for England. You look at kind of the England squad now that's going through, and you know, nearly half of the, the young players coming through have played under him either at Saints or Tottenham. Um, whether the yeah. FA would go with that or not, I don't know. This, I suppose they're going with the whole English manager thing at the moment. But once the Gareth Southgate thing backfires, and they'll probably go, oh, we need a South American flair. Maybe that'll be the opportunity to bring them in on that. Sure. Um, would he take it? Well, I don't know. I guess that's a big question. Uh, he's probably holding out for one of the really big jobs in Europe. I, I would yeah, imagine. I think so. All right, well, Mitchell, I'm going to let you go because you've spoken to me for half an hour, which is uh, um, much more than I asked for. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Well, brilliant. That was fantastic to hear from uh, Mitchell and Junior and Mitchell Letizia, uh hear their insights on uh, their life as uh, the sons of famous Southampton football players. Uh, remember, if you want to... Uh, subscribe to the Saints FC podcast. You can do that on iTunes. Please like, subscribe, give us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at Saints FC podcast um, on Twitter. And if you want to email us, it's Saints FC podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're really keen to hear your thoughts. Let us know who you think uh, should be a future guest on the show. And um, let us know if you agree or disagree with anything that we've discussed. Thank you once again for listening to us. And uh, we hope to have you listening again next time around. Cheerio.